Welcome to the Additive Snack Podcast. I'm your host, Fabian Alefeld, and today we have a very special guest with us, Chuck Hansford, Director of Advanced Development at Ticomet. Welcome, Chuck. Hi, good morning. So, Chuck, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say you're one of those guys in the industry with probably the most experience, if not in the United States globally, especially when it comes to additive manufacturing in the medical space. And I'm sure along your journey, which we'll touch upon within this podcast, there was a moment when you realized, oh, this technology is more than prototyping. Can you talk me through your journey into additive manufacturing and touch on that point? Well, thank you for the intro, but probably not the most experienced, but I've been around a long time, so I have a lot of it. So I started in the uh, additive world actually back in the early to mid-90s in the plastic side of the business. So I started, uh, I was uh, trained on uh, stereolithography, went through all the the hands-on training for that, and and actually was uh, using the technology very often for prototype development for our medical customers, not necessarily orthopedics, but a lot of uh, customers when I was working with Johnson Johnson. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the plastics, you could create a a really nice part very fast. You could clean it up. You could generate a a almost precision-looking part, hand it to a surgeon, and the first thing they would do was push a button, squeeze a handle, or drop it, and it would be pieces, right? And so it became very frustrating all the time you spent putting this together to create a hands-on model that would just be destroyed in seconds, right? So in in 2003, I started working for Morris Technologies. At the time, Morris Technologies was a small contract manufacturer, mainly in the plastic space. They had uh, Mm -hmm. stereolithography, a few machines. And I was brought on to run their medical business. At that time, Greg Morris had found out about a technology in Germany called EOS, which was Mm -hmm. a metal-based additive manufacturing process. And in 2003, we brought the first additive EOS machine to the U.S. It was an M250. And it was great because it it actually did what I call metal SLA, right? Mm -hmm. It allowed us to generate three-dimensional parts of metal that if you drop them, they wouldn't shatter. But with that came some unique dynamics that you never really thought about, right? Because you, you've got metals. We At the time, we had a, I think it was a, like a ductile uh, steel and a, uh, a bronze-based material. And no one really understood about the attaching the part to the build plate and putting supports on it. And the support structures at the time were not conducive to easy removal. Mm -hmm. And uh, you spent more time trying to remove the supports than it took to build the part. Wow. But you had a, you had a metal part that wouldn't break. So at that time, you know, I, I, we looked at that to say, how can we use this technology for parts instead of what we were originally going to use the product for? And that was mold inserts for the Mm -hmm. uh, injection molding um, field. And so we started making parts on the medical side, on the aerospace side. And then every finding that we had, we would 
actually give back to EOS and say, hey, can you do this? Can we do this? And then emerged the M270, which was a major breakthrough in the technology. It allowed us to use different materials, especially cobalt, and then eventually titanium, and then as it grew from there to other materials. But it really revolutionized the industry for us. And, you know, we were a, as I call it, a kick the tire, uh, raise the hood, let's see what makes the machine break instead of um, saying, okay, the, the manufacturer said we can only do this. Well, now let's try this, right? Let's try that. And, and that's what really caused more technologies to become on the face of the map on additive is we were willing to try just about anything to make mm -hmm. sure we got a quality part. Super interesting story. And yeah, maybe you're not the most experienced guy in additive overall, but definitely in the top when it comes to metal additive manufacturing in, uh, in the United States, since you were one of the, the first users of, of, of metal additive really in the right. States. You know, what I think is very interesting is you'll never hear Chuck say, let's print a part. You refer to it as growing, Grow right? which I think, yeah, you always refer to it as growing, which I think is such a perfect description to the manufacturing process using using AM. Now, we talked about the, the history of, of yourself, but also of additive, metal additive, especially in, in the United States. Where does the medical industry stand today when it comes to adopting AM? Of the top five ortho, or orthopedic manufacturers today, the OEMs, every one of them are utilizing additive manufacturing on the metal mm -hmm. side and the plastic side. It is becoming a little bit more received by these customers. They are looking at it to where they can take this technology into the future, not only from an implant market on the orthopedic side, but also an instrumentation market mm -hmm. of looking at uh, custom instruments or being able to change uh, unique features on devices uh, quickly for one-offs. Uh, for specific uh, surgeries. So it's the adaptability is, is growing. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that becoming more trusting in the technology that it is a viable technology for manufacturing and for production. Now, um, saying that, and I had a unique conversation with our, our COO, at, uh, at Morris, at Ticomet, um, uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, in mm -hmm. regards to saying it is a development technology that we can use to make production parts. And the reason I say that is we still don't know a lot about this technology. We're learning every day, right? The fact that you can grow a part And you can grow it a hundred times and be successful. And the hundred and one time you grow it, hundred first time you grow it, it fails. Same build parameters, same program, same setup, same machine, everything, right? And it's not that it's a failure in the technology. It's just understanding the uniqueness of the technology, right? And so if I were to qualify the technology based on a human life cycle, We're not at adolescence. We're not at puberty. We're, you know, to me, we're probably in the ninth trimester, you know, uh, of birth because we're still learning. You know, 
Uh, and some people might say, oh, no, it's definitely a production technology. And you can do production with it. But because the fact that every geometry is unique to itself, it lends itself to being a development technology that you can do production on. Mm -hmm. And we do production every day on our machines. We do. But we also do development every day on our machines. Right? And every new geometry, we set it up, we, we support it like we think it should run, and we run it. And if it runs, great. If it doesn't, we go back and understand why, do a root cause analysis. Maybe it's support structure. Maybe it's um, the, the way the recoder hits the part. You know, it could be a lot of different things. So we go back, reevaluate what we did, make the changes and start over. Right? Yeah. And it is interesting that you say that from an outside perspective, people might be almost shocked that you say that baby is not even born. It's in the third trimester. But ultimately, that's that's a really positive thing because it's not even born yet. And we're producing serial applications on that technology in the medical space, as you say, the top five orthopedic organizations are using metal and polymer AM for production parts. The automotive industry is ramping up. Space is using it on a daily basis for critical applications. So that truly means, you know, this is just the beginning of a very exciting journey. And I think Absolutely. the adoption has, hasn't even started to really hit those numbers yet that we're, we're going to see. Now, now, when it comes to TicoMed, the organization that you're you're at mm -hmm. now, what's the role that TicoMed plays in the orthopedic market, and what role does Additive play for you guys? Well, TicoMed is the largest contract manufacturer in the orthopedic space today. Mm -hmm. We are probably ninety five percent subtractive, uh, with five percent additive. And uh, does that mean that we're not really pushing additive? No, it, it, we do push additive. But we've always been a subtractive company. Uh, I think the numbers I heard, we produce 70% of all uh, femoral implants today hmm. through across our, our businesses. And we do like 55% of all um, hip stems today. Wow. Uh, so we're a very large company on the subtractive side with investment casting and machining and and uh, that type of application. But on the additive side, you know, we started in 2015. We have slowly developed the technology internally, uh, getting with our customers and, and creating unique opportunities. But in this industry, um, and, and as I was explaining to you the other day, we have a particular product that we manufacture today, and it is in production. But it has taken us seven years to get to production. Wow. Now, it's not seven years of development. I say the development was probably less than a year and a half, maybe two years max. But it was getting the OEM that we're working with to accept the technology. Mm -hmm. That was the biggest, the biggest impact. And that's just one case. Um, other cases where we uh, it took us three years to get into production because we had to develop the process where uh, the current production project, project we're working on now, it has 165 SKUs, and they're all different. And you can't look at each part. You have to look at each part, let me say. You have to look at each part independently 
of how mm-hmm. you grow it, how you support it, and how you run it because it, they're so unique. And, and so it, it's that development cycle that takes takes a while. Now, you, you mentioned all these other people in production today. Absolutely, right? Once you nail down the build parameters and, and get a, uh, a project running, so let's say like the fuel nozzle, right? Mm-hmm. It's running in full production. It's doing great. But I would I would ask the question: If when when GE went from the M270 to the M280 on the production of the fuel nozzle, there was a major delay because you couldn't just take it from one machine to the next without redeveloping that process. When they went sure. from the M280 to the M290 to the uh, concept laser machine, the same process happened, right? Just like today, if you go from an M290 to an M400, it's not like you're taking the same program and sticking on that machine. You have to redevelop yeah. it. So that's why I'm saying it's constantly changing. Yes, you can do production and you can do production repeatedly, but there are some hiccups that you have to go through. Now, if, if um, so on the subtractive side, if I go from a, uh, I'll just throw out a, a machine, a, a Haas VF2, to a Haas VF4 or VF6, I don't really have to change my how I set that part up and how I run it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because even though I'm going to a larger platform machine, but on on additive you do yeah. because they they're unique and the technologies we're running today, the technologies that are being that they're developing product for production, I truly believe are not going to be the same machines we're running in ten years. The technology is going to change. It's going to, um, something is going to happen. Someone's going to find something out there, some unique capability that's going to change the whole dynamic of how we're doing it today. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, the reason why we find ourselves having to look at a process from one system to the other is also because the process is very complex compared to machining, right? You're, You're creating a part out of, very fine powder particles between 20 and 60 microns uh, in size. And you're using a laser to melt these particles in uh, a very, very small and defined space of, you know, a laser spot size of 80 microns. So the, the control that you, that you need in order to create a reproducible process is quite, quite extensive. And, you know, here I, I totally agree the the users and the organizations that are using additive manufacturing truly require that experience to to build processes and understand the system in depth. Now, you talked about a few of those programs that you guys are, are working on right now. Mm-hmm. One took seven years, one took three years. Can you take us through that development lifecycle from truly idea or kicking off a product like this to production? Which steps is Tikumet taking to get there? Well, I, I think the biggest step is the, the convincing the customer that this is the right application. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest step and that you have the infrastructure to support that need. Right? But you, it's not just from the additive side. You know, you can grow parts and, and there's a lot of companies out there that are growing parts. But once you grow that part, do you have the back end infrastructure to support it? And, mm-hmm. and that's the post-processing, you know, the ability to remove 
the support structure, the ability to clean up the surface roughness of the part, the ability to meet the print requirements for that production part, right? Now, I will tell you that in my experience, and I think this has made it very easy for uh, people in the industry, is that most of the do production today actually post-machine the critical features after the parts are grown. And they don't try to dial in, as I call dial in, the features on the part to an as-grown condition, which you can Mm -hmm. do successfully, Mm -hmm. right? As you look at the, say, the M290, and you do an analysis of the dimensional integrity of the part um, based on location, what we have found is that because of the laminar flow, and because of the laser off of the mirrors and whatever, that the back left corner of the M290 yields the worst dimensional integrity. Now, I'm not talking it's hundreds of thousands of off, but it is not as, as tight a tolerance as what I'm getting in the four-inch um, area from the center of the part. Mm-hmm. And, and as you look at the, the corners, you have some variation. But if your near-net shape is going to be machined, it doesn't matter. If the features that are not machined and are grown as conditioned aren't dimensioned that tight, it doesn't matter, right? And, and so you look at each part that way and, and you determine that, you know, if you've got a post-process, and let me throw this in there as, as uh, just a caveat, is that additive manufacturing is not going to replace subtractive manufacturing. Agreed. Anytime soon. You know, you need that post process and that back end subtractive business to make additive successful. Right. And so when we look at our products and we and we develop them, you know, uh, from concept all the way through production, we have to look at every application of the product. Right. You know, can it be grown? Can it be grown successfully? Is there repeatability? Do we have the post-processing to meet the dimensional requirements of the part? Do we have the post-processing to meet the finishing requirements of the part? Mm -hmm. And today, I would tell you that's ever-changing. The machining application, which makes you additive so unique, is I have the ability to grow holding features on my additive parts to make it easier for our back-end subtractive people to hold it to register it, to be able to get that repeatability from machining it. Mm-hmm. And in the past, this wasn't looked at. You know, we would grow a part, we'd throw it across the fence to the subtractive guys and say, hey, you figure it out, right? And now we have the ability to do that successfully. If you wanted to grow a dovetail feature on the part that you could put it into a dovetail vise on your machining center, you can do that. And I think that's what's really helped the technology move forward is that you can provide applications to the product to make it easier on the back end. Now, the other side of that, you have to understand the support structure because, again, if it takes you more time to remove the support structure than does it grow the part, it may not be valuable for this technology. Sure. One critical piece, especially when we talk about the medical industry, is... Mm -hmm to ensure that there is no powder particles left on 
an orthopedic implant, for example, before it goes into a human body. There's also other industries where that is super critical, where you don't want metal powder, for example, to be trapped in an oil cycle in a in an engine or uh, similar applications. Do you have any advice for people out there on how to ensure that uh, there's no trapped powder particles within an application? Now, that's a really neat question. So I think that, first of all, you have to be very cautious about trapping powder, right? You have to mm -hmm. make sure that there's no residual powder in the parts. And we've looked at this many ways throughout the years, you know, doing um, a ultrasonic bath with high pressure uh, flow against the part and, and trying to get it to, to come out. Today, we actually have a vibratory chamber that was developed by one of the first um, companies that had a had a um, approved five ten k approved acetabular shell that with porous structure. They developed this for the industry. It's um, uh, they developed the, the um, chamber um, that once we bring parts out of the machine, it goes in this vibratory chamber. It goes in there for a specific cycle time. To, to just shake the heck out of the parts while they're still in the build plate. And then that build plate goes through an ultrasonic bath with a high precision, um, high pressure um, flow on those, on those cups, individual cups as it is. And then they go out for heat treat. Now, what we have found that what particles aren't removed through that process, that if you do your heat treat cycles correctly, they will solidify that powder. Now, if you don't get all the powder out or the majority of the powder out, it can affect the density of your, of your product for a lot of structure. Mm -hmm. But we feel very confident that through the proper heat treat cycles, that you're going to center any residual powder and make it part of the solid substrate and not have to worry about it after that. But you have to go through those previous steps to get there. Interesting. Thanks. Thanks for those insights. I think a lot of people uh, are wondering, especially while entering into into this technology, that is something that's on top of their mind. Now, when we look at the medical industry today, you know, we said it's that unborn baby that is about to be birthed. Mm -hmm. um, nevertheless, a lot of manufacturing and medical go perfectly together. And the medical, especially the orthopedic space, is actually one of the first adopters of additive manufacturing for production applications. And a month ago or so, we met in uh, in Austin and you talked about some stats on how many uh, hip cups today industry in the industry are actually 3D printed. Do you remember some of those numbers uh, just for the listeners uh, to understand the scale of even current adoption of additive in that space? Well, the, the adopt it's about adoption. And this is actually, if you listen to a lot of the um, um, experts in the field that are doing projections for the future, um, today, I, I can't tell you, maybe it's 25% of cups that are generated. Uh, mm -hmm. But the experts are predicting that in the next five years, over 50% of all acetabular shells with poor structure will be additively grown. Now, that is all based on um, just how way the trend is going. Mm -hmm. But I think that as, as the medical OEMs understand the technology, feel comfortable with the technology, I, I think this trend will occur. 
um, as the adoption of the technology has over the last, you know, what are we at, uh, a 30% growth over the last five years. And they expect that to be somewhere between 15 and 25% over the next five years. And that's just in the medical space. Uh, today, there's an estimated 800, I think it's like 880 or almost 900 additive machines just in the orthopedic space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's across all of the different uh, players that are out there. Um, there are roughly $640 million of, of additive manufacturing or prototyping or development work done um, annually. And, and those are big numbers, right? And that's not, a, that's not probably anywhere near what's going on in the, in the aerospace world. But I think as we adapt the technology moving forward, you're going to see these numbers grow. You know, one of the uh, projects that I was telling you about, the, the seven-year project that we were working on, we finally got mm -hmm. to production. It's 38 SKUs. And it is something that uh, has been hand-done or hand-manufactured, subtracted manufactured for years. And now we found a way to do it additively that, gives us a more repeatable, more consistent part with thin wall conditions and allows us to go into the general surgery field, not the, not the orthopedic, but general surgery. And it's it taken us into a new market. That's the true power of additive right there, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're making it faster, more repeatable, better. Uh, and in this case, most likely also more economically viable uh, than, than before. Well, um, you, and you have to be cautious on that. Let me interject here. You have to be cautious of the fact that just because it's better and more consistent, you also have to be cost competitive. Right? Yeah. And and there are some applications where if I can make a, what I call a better part, um, that is, it's repeatable from a geometry standpoint, it gives you that that pristine part. But if it doesn't bring value across the board, then it's not a fit for this technology, right? Um, if it costs us twice as much to manufacture, even though it looks better and it's more repeatable, it's not a value add, right? So I want to interject that and just say, you know, we also have to be very cautious of if we're going to cannibalize subtractive manufacturing with this technology, we have to be superior in what this product brings to the market mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. and to me i i just say this just from history if it's comparable right so if if it's cost wise it's the same um re, the the value uh, across the board is the same then i would go subtractive over additive just because yep. i know i have more history with additive or subtractive i have more knowledge with subtractive and that really accounts for every new technology that enters. It does. Absolutely. Right? If, whether, whether I use artificial intelligence now as a writer and I try to understand, you know, it's, it's the, if it's not faster, if it doesn't get me to my finish line in a better way, why, why transition? So I 100% agree that we need to find these applications where, where additive adds true value 
and it's not yes. just a one-on-one -on -one substitution. And that value may lay purely in the supply chain for some organizations, uh, where with the current <clears throat> supply chain ch challenges that we see, uh, additive is a viable viable technology. Mm -hmm. Now, I have one more question for you, Chuck, yeah. and that is, you mentioned that in your seven-year project, one of the most challenging parts of that was to convince your OEM that additive is a viable solution. Now, there's many more folks out there today that still struggle to understand or wrap their head around additive being a viable production technology. What are some of your key messages to those engineers, C-level guys out there or uh, operators that are still a little bit skeptical about the technology? Well, you know, I, I use this and, and um, so it, the one of the sayings in the state of Missouri is, is called the show me state, right? Mm -hmm. And I believe that additive is that same application. You have to show me, right? You have to prove to me that this technology can meet everything that I need and more mm -hmm. to convince mm -hmm. them. Now, when I, I stated earlier that all five of the top OEMs in the orthopedic space use additive, they do. And some are in production, most of them are going into production, but it's taken them a while. They've had it for years, right? Mm -hmm. um, of the top 15, 10 of them either have the technology internal or are outsourcing that, that capability for production. So it, it's being accepted, it's just being accepted slow, right? Think about this. I, I was touching audiences in the medical space in 2003, 2004. J&J, &J, well, at the Pew at the time, brought on additive in 2006. Mm -hmm. um, Zimmer brought it down into, I believe, 2009, 2010, right? But it was it was out for a while before that. And we were talking to them and we were showing them parts. And that's why I say you have to put a part in their hand and mm -hmm. you have to be able to convince them and show them that this technology can meet their need. Now, that seven year part. I think we failed as much on convincing the customer on that project as the customer was in adapting the technology. They sent us a model file that was their subtractive model file. Mm -hmm. And we grew that part, not yeah. really paying attention to what was the best application for additive, but we wanted to show them we could get a part in their hand. And we did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And without having any knowledge of what the post-processing requirements or the finishing requirements of that product was, we made a part, we cleaned it up to make it look like a, a shiny part, and we sent it to them. Now, what we failed to understand is the application of the part. And when they got the part and the surface roughness, when if you look at an additive part and you have experience with additive parts, even though you can polish them up and make them look good, if you don't get down to the solid substrate and remove that surface roughness on the part, you're going to have, and I, I hate to use the word pits, but it looks like pits right? And, mm -hmm. and holes and they look dark, you know, when you polish them and then people say, oh, it's porous. And it's not, you just haven't cleaned it up, right? Yeah. You didn't yeah. clean up. And because we did not know that and we put it in the customer's hands, they said, ah, this isn't going to work for us, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we mm -hmm. had to go back and actually take their product and make modifications to it 
So it was additive conducive. And to finish it to the point that their, their actual production uh, subtractive part was, and they get it back in their hands and say, hey, this is what you can do with this technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we failed as much of, of not providing them with the final part because we didn't ask the right questions. And that's important. You have to ask the right questions of the customer to understand the application of their need. And once you do that and you understand that, it becomes more of a symbiotic partnership than a mm-hmm. vendor-customer um, relationship. And to mm-hmm. me, with additive, that is the most critical thing. To be able to sit down with your customer and talk through what the product needs are and make those suggestions, recommendations to make it an additive product and to show the value to that. But also do not fear to push back on the customer and say, this is not an additive application and here's why. Now, people might say, well, you're turning away business. And I, and I say, you know, are you, you're not really turning away business because if you provide them with a product that does not meet their expectation, now you've changed their, their mind on if this technology is a value add for them or not. They look at it and say, I got a lousy part. I'm not going that way. All additive parts are going to be like this. And that's not the case, right? So it's that relationship that makes it key to success. And the other mm-hmm. thing is understanding and helping your customer understand the ability to design to the technology because that's key to success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Understand the limitations of the technology. How do you do that? You fail. And, 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 I, and I say this, and, and, and Greg, and this will probably make Greg more a smile, but it's the case. Morse Technologies was successful because we failed and we failed a lot. But every time we failed, we root cause analysis the problem, corrected it, came up with something new, unique, and moved forward. And that's how we became successful. And that's what you have to do with this technology. Yeah, perfect summary to a really, really good episode, Chuck. Uh, thank you for all the advice that you've shared with us today. I'm truly excited to see the future of, of medical in, in the space of additive manufacturing. Can't wait to see companies grow more parts and grow parts that we haven't seen before. And I can't wait to see what comes out of T-Commit next. So thanks for the advice and thank you for being on Additive Snack. Well, I appreciate uh, the invite uh, to be on the, on the show. And let me add one last thing in closing. Additive manufacturing is going to grow immensely in the future because we are now, we've taken it into academia, we've got it into the colleges, we've got it into the high school, we've even got it into the elementary schools. And by getting this technology in the hands of the younger kids through education, this technology is just going to just flourish. Couldn't agree more. So 